Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Uh, here's a joke. It's a classic. Why did the grape go out with the prune? Why? Because he couldn't get a date. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from comedian Nick Kroll. That'll help break the ice. We will speak with him later about the new season of his hit sketch series, Kroll Show. Which is way funnier than that joke. It is. Plus, we chat with Laura Poitras, director of the documentary Citizen Four. It just got an Oscar nomination. Also coming up, world-renowned tenor Joseph Kalea lists his favorite opera moments and movies. Chef Eddie Wong, whose real life is about to become an ABC sitcom, tries to behave while telling us how to behave. <laughs> and I learn what a kolache is and how to turn it into a delicious grenade. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Grand Budapest Hotel and Birdman led the Oscar nomination announcements. Sold out within minutes. The first edition of Charlie Hebdo since last week's attack. The Ohio State Buckeyes won the NCAA football championship. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Antonia Sarajido. She is associate producer at the NPR show Latino USA. Antonia, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I'm going to be talking about a fish that the government wants us to kill in mass. Oh, man. Nice. Mm-hmm. This is refreshing, though, because usually, yeah. you know, the seas have been depleted and we haven't been able to really eat fish lately. Yeah. yeah, so please, I'm eager to hear what I'm allowed to eat now. <laughs> it's called the lionfish. It's this beautiful fish. I mean, you could even think of it as like the fairy of fishes. It has these beautiful colors and like Aww. wing-like fins. Why do they want us to not make it live anymore? It's an invasive species, so it's not Aww. native to the Atlantic Ocean. Gotcha. It mysteriously appeared in the 80s, and it's killing all of the coral. It eats 56 different kinds of species, oh, which no. is a lot of different kinds of species. I mean, Red Lobster gives you that same opportunity for 995 <laughs> on Sundays, but... You different. always see lionfish in line at Red Lobster. <laughs> Can't wait exactly. to get in. Exactly. Uh, so um, why is it in the news this week? So the government organization that protects the waters created a website, tells you how to catch it, and even encourages killing lionfish. So there's an entire Twitter community under hashtag lionfish where you see, like, bro fishermen really <laughs> proud of how they killed the lionfish. The government is inciting people to... To murder. Yes. I liked it better when the government said, please recycle. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's funny also because I learned that they're obese. I had never thought that a fish could be obese. Whoa. They're they're like eating this so much for them to (laughs) eat that they're just fattening up. So I'm starting to think Michelle Obama should, you know, transfer her focus to a different community. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe maybe the fish will just get picked on by other fish and leave. That that would be totally fine. And then the Atlantic will just be full of bully fish. (laughs) Antonia, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then have a bartender capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our barrel-aged history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1901, a discovery in Texas changed the world forever. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Texas was known mainly for cattle and cotton, till Patillo Higgins came along. An amateur geologist, Higgins was obsessed with Spindletop Hill near the town of Beaumont, Texas. The hill was formed by what's called a salt dome, a bulge of underground minerals that pushed up the rock above it. Higgins' theory? The dome would also create cavities in the earth around it. 
a great hiding place for lakes of oil. Only problem? No one believed him, especially after his company drilled three wells on Spindletop that struck only quicksand. Finally, Higgins placed an ad for some expert help and got one response from a guy named Anthony Lucas, a salt miner who also suspected salt domes hid oil. The men struck a deal and Lucas started drilling. It took months, but on January 10th, 1901, mud bubbled up from his well, then an eruption of natural gas, and then the most powerful oil geyser the world had ever seen shot more than 100 feet into the air. It spit out 100,000 gallons a day, more than all the oil wells in America combined. The Lucas Gusher changed Texas almost overnight. Oil prospectors flooded in, companies like Gulf and Texaco sprung up, Beaumont land that had been 10 bucks an acre suddenly sold for thousands. And the gusher changed the world, too, because all that newfound oil fueled the nascent automobile industry, literally. Industries kept sucking oil and other resources out of Spindletop Hill for most of the century. Maybe too much, actually. A monument to the Lucas Gusher had to be moved away from Spindletop when the ground beneath it subsided. That was the history lesson. Now it's time for the drink to go along with it. I'm on the line with Paul Schrack. He is a bartender at The Grill in Beaumont, Texas, the town that the Spindletop oil well helped put on the map. Paul, you heard the history. What cocktail did that inspire you to make? Tonight I decided to go with the Black Gold Martini. The Black Gold Martini. I think I know where the name came from. Tell me how you make it. So first of all, you take the martini glass, you wet the rim. I decided to go with a sugar and coffee ground blend. And then after the rim's wet, then you roll the rim into the combination of the two. And so it looks black and sparkly, basically. Basically, yes. Then you take Goldschlager liqueur, mm-hmm. which has gold flakes in it. So you put that in, all the gold flakes come out. All right, so we have the Goldschlagers in there. So next, I have Patron Cafe XO. What is that? It's a coffee-flavored tequila. So Goldschlager has kind of a cinnamon flavor, right? It does. And then coffee tequila. Th- these are big, bold flavors. I'd expect nothing less from Texas. Most definitely the best. <laughs> Biggest and the best. <laughs> and the craziest. That's right. Uh, so far. So go ahead. What, what else are you going to put into this martini? And I use, I use that term lightly. So you take the Patron Cafe XO, you take a bartender's spoon, and then yeah. you drizzle liqueur over the top. It's heavier, so it sinks to the bottom. Okay. And then it separates and looks like an oil slick. <laughs> That's a drink for the evening. So, hey, have you lived in Beaumont your whole life? Are you from Beaumont? I'm actually from Seattle, Washington. So I've been down here about an hour or a year and a half. You've just recently moved down there. Are you going to find your treasure in Beaumont, Texas? I already have. My girlfriend and I have a 19-month-old daughter, and she's originally from this area, and it's great. I love Texas. So there you have it. The black gold martini sounds tasty. It does. Although I was thinking with oil prices crashing, it's not black gold so much right now, right? (laughs) Yeah. It should be something else. It's more like black pyrite. Exactly. The black tin martini. Or Texas tea, the standby. How about Okay. (laughs) Long Island Texas tea. Mm. People, whatever you want to call it, you'll find this and all our drink recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. 
And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is singer Joseph Kalea. He hails from Malta, where he started singing tenor at age 16. Today he's one of opera's emerging stars. He wraps up a month-long residency at London's Royal Opera House this weekend. And he's also a movie buff, just in time for Oscar nominations. Here's his list of his favorite opera moments in movies. Hello, I'm Joseph Kalea, and here I am to have a chat about opera and movies. Some composers, let's take Puccini, for example. He was very cinematic. Think of La Boheme. It could be a movie. I mean, it's almost the same length, and they call it verismo. Verismo means literally it's like real life. And what, what are movies? Movies are, uh, you know, it's, it's a glimpse of real life or the simulation of real life. Mascani was the same way. Uh, Mascani's Cavalleria Rusticana is extremely cinematic. It's about the mafia. And I think that some of the great composers, had they been alive today, would be certainly writing for films. Mary, please go. So here we go. Here is my list of my favorite opera moments in movies. One of my favorite moments is definitely Godfather Part 3, when Pacino and his daughter Mary, they're in Sicily, and uh, Mary's shot. When Pacino realizes that his daughter um, is dead, they play Mascani's music, the Cavalleria Rusticana, the uh, intermezzo. You know, it's about murder, revenge murder, love, betrayal. And they film Al Pacino screaming. And at first they don't let you hear, you know, his voice. His voice comes later to shocking and dramatic effect. And that is so powerful, he, he captures the pain so, so vividly. And then there's the help, of course, of Mascani's beautiful music. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Okay, we're still in the mafia for my second choice. Goodfellas. In the opening sequence of the movie, the director uses a song, actually, with the great voice of Giuseppe Di Stefano. That was the first time I'd ever seen anyone shot. Jesus, can't have that in we have the young Ray Liotta. He's running, you know, with the guy who has been shot in the hand. You know, and this beautiful melody in this dramatic, dramatic situation really grasps your attention. The, the tenor who's singing it is Giuseppe Di Stefano. He uh, had a glorious career in the 50s, um, always sung every single song as if it was the last song he was going to sing. It wasn't very smart, and in fact he ended up paying the price because his career ended very quickly. But there's a story of the great tenor Mario Lanza when someone asked, can you imitate Di Stefano? And Mario said, come si fa ad imitare la voce di Dio? Which means, uh, how do you imitate the voice of God? <laughs> third choice would be Pretty Woman. You know, Pretty Woman is pretty much based on La Traviata. You have um, the courtesan, which is Julia Roberts, and you have the upper class guy, which is um, Richard Gere. And they even go to the opera, and uh, you know, which is, of course, La Traviata. (laughs) 
there's a clip from every act of the opera, if I remember well. And Julia Roberts starts crying as she's listening to the opera. And perhaps she says, oh my God, I mean, maybe I have a chance, you know, at love. I watch Pretty Woman um, now and again, and um, it's very hard not to tear up, especially if your relationship is under some turmoil or we just broke up or, you know, it's just love the way we all want it to be. In Traviata, unfortunately, things don't quite work out because she dies. And that has a habit of getting, you know, in the way. But in Pretty Woman, of course, it all ends happily ever after. It's perhaps too good to be true, but yeah, who wouldn't marry um, Julia Roberts? I mean, seriously. Did you enjoy the opera, dear? Oh, it was so good, I almost peed my pants. The guest list from opera singer Joseph Kalea. He appears next Friday at 10 p.m. on PBS Live from Lincoln Center. By the way, Rico, he also starred with Renee Fleming in a Grammy-nominated production of La Traviata. Aha, uh-huh, bias. That's right. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, comedian Nick Kroll, when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, I chat with Lara Poitras about her Oscar-nominated documentary, Citizen Four. And later, chef and author Eddie Huang talks about watching his life turn into a sitcom. Literally. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week, it's comedian Nick Kroll. He is one of the funniest stand-ups you ever will see. He writes and stars as the ruthless fantasy football player Rodney Ruxin in the hit FX TV series The League. And for the last few years, he has also starred in his own sketch comedy show on Comedy Central, aptly titled Kroll Show. Hmm. It consists largely of amazingly accurate parodies of various TV genres in which he plays dozens of characters from confused Canadian teenagers to idiot gigolos. The show's third season launched this week. Nick says it will be the last. And when we met, I asked if he planned to spin any of the sketches into a new show. Fortunately or unfortunately, I have no game plan. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I have a game plan that I want to go make more stuff. (laughs) I hope so. That's about it. Because it's your job. Right. That is the only, because it's proven to be the only thing that I can do. (laughs) I'm I'm sure you'll figure something out. Something that I really love about the show is you're so gifted at mimicking these obscure accents. There's a recurring sketch on the show that uh, takes place in Ontario, Canada. You do an Ontario accent. Uh, You are very adept at the Southern California publicist accent. Sure, sure. I guess would be the subset of Valley Girl that you do. Uh, First of all, is that where some of these sketches come from? Does it start with language for you? Uh, it does. Sometimes, like, the, the, the there, we do a sketch called Pennsylvania, where I play um, a guy from Philadelphia, and uh, John Daly plays a guy from Pittsburgh. John is from Pittsburgh, and a bunch of our writers were from Philadelphia. And I find that accent so bizarre. Yes. Uh, and weirdly hard to do. It's a very, it's weirdly caught in between like Pennsylvania caught in between North and South. (laughs) Like it's Gettysburg. It is the Gettysburg of accents because it's just, (laughs) it's just carnage. I have, I'm I'm glad you bring this up by the way, because I was going to for you. I'm from Pittsburgh as well. Oh, wow. And I kind of have a beef with you. Because the Pittsburgh accent was kind of my secret weapon. Nobody, uh, there aren't yeah. many people that go to Pittsburgh, and not many people ever hear it. And I will put it on occasionally, and people are like, "What are you doing?" It's right now? so weird. Yes. It's, now everyone knows it. Yeah, I hope you take this um, as a compliment. It's one of the <laughs> ugliest accents I've ever heard. 
Um, and But the Philly one is also really weirdly tough. And so that started as we had a bunch of writers from the Philly area and Pittsburgh. And it was so specific. They had so many specifics to it that it seemed like an interesting world. But mm-hmm. but really it was the idea of mastering that accent, uh, which was the, the hardest for me to learn because it's so specific and yeah. so caught between different spaces. What, what was the linchpin for you? Um, to me it's that L's turn into W's. There's that. There's um like... Home run. The the H O that O thing is like or the Poconos and then Philadelphia. That is that there is the L gets lost in there. And then I didn't have to do the Pittsburgh one. John Daly does it, but he's like so these guys, you know, coming over there, jag you, bunch of jag offs. Like it's the weirdest. It's so weird. Um, it's, imagine growing up with it. I can't even. But it's but I've grown to love it and now can hear it on people and in people. And this year we go, Pennsylvania, they go to a wedding down at, um, down ashore in Oceanside, Oceanside, Maryland. And so then we have Derek Waters from Drunk History as a Baltimore guy and Neil Casey, one of the other writers, as a Delaware guy pa- passing as a guy from Baltimore. The thing that's amazing about all these is that they're not accents that anybody ever hears. Like, you don't think about a Delaware accent. I mean, are you seeking out the next well, that's the big th- accent? <laughs> that's, we're always on the, it's like the, it's like the new pork bun. Do you know what I mean? That's what we're, I'm, I'm on the search for the, the new, the arepa of comedy. But I, but I think it's, you know, for me, part of the goal of the show is always that we are nailing the specifics within specifics i believe is universality so whether you understand the specifics of the references we're making in pennsylvania or the references that we're making or making up in canada it (laughs) it's like people whether you get it or not you know that it's a specific and there's something enjoyable about hearing them a tale of two big cities the city of brotherly love welcome to the bird with two even bigger personalities i'm murph owner and operator of south philly murph's pawn shop on south street here in philly i got all the business and women i can handle he's looking for something stillers pirates penguins got all that crap down don's pawn oh that's good as hell welcome welcome to pennsylvania speaking of specifics actually something that you nail uncannily is uh, reality TV shows to the point where I can't figure out whether you love them or really hate them. I can't either. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, the way I watch television is I flip through channels. I watch about five minutes of everything. Kind of like the show, actually. Exactly. And so the show kind of reflects that. So, um, you know, I'll go from like five minutes of uh, Millionaire Matchmaker to five minutes of like a weird South Korean melodrama to five minutes of like a Time Life Yacht Rock CD sale. Um, and I just and I kind of like to get, you know, especially living in L.A., you have less opportunity. You run into people less or you have less ability to observe people. And so television does become a way to absorb accents, aesthetics, way people dress, that kind of stuff. Um, but but I do. And I look, the, the things that people talk about and the things that I mean, people talk about great dramas. They talk about some good comedy stuff. But a lot of people, a lot of Americans spend their time, their leisure time watching these reality shows. They're the most popular shows in, in the country, really. Do you think of it as a satire, though, what you're doing? Is, are you pointing out to people, look at what you're watching, for God's sake? Um, I think it's a combination of things like uh, this coming week on the show, Casey Wilson plays a character that is like the millionaire matchmaker. But it's it's Dr. Armand is looking for love after he's murdered his wife. <laughs> 
and he's got their oh. they've got a millionaire matchmaker show but yes. it's called the losers bracket yeah that's, that's a little dark <laughs> right so there are things that are sort of a tip of the hat and homage there are certain things that we're making fun of but reality shows are a very I mean there's a reason they're popular and there's a reason people make them they're cheap to make it's effective storytelling and then it can also be reshaped in post right you can just shoot it quick and make it actually dramatic with editing afterwards yeah uh let us get to our two standard questions which we ask everyone on the show the first one is what's the question you're tired of being asked in interviews um well people ask me why i'm stopping the show and the answer is was a creative decision was feeling like we brought whatever we were doing to the extent of where we could bring it but also underlying that is people wondering whether the show was canceled. Oh, no, no, no. That, um, the reason why I would ask you that question, I believe that you ended the show for creative reasons. I just can't imagine what other creative endeavor could be better. You can do anything you want on I the know. Show. I, and I just am now realizing that. <laughs> <laughs> can you take it back? Uh, no, I don't think so. Maybe on second thought. Once you, once you give a scoop to Vulture... <laughs> It's over. Which is where where I told, said that we were putting the show to bed. You can't go back from that. No, I, I've I've thought about this quite a bit, and it just um, now that the first episode has come out, and it's really fun seeing people responding to it and all that stuff. I really am enjoying that aspect of it. But I also think like I'm also very excited that I'm not now also writing the next season <laughs> as all of this is going on. Vacations are nice. Yes. Uh, our second question is, tell us something we don't know. I talk in my sleep, um, really? which I don't think people would know that. I talk in my sleep a lot. And a couple years ago, I was sharing a room uh, with my friend Murray Miller, who's a writer for girls. He told me in the morning that in the middle of the night, I very clearly and crisply said, I shall retrieve it for you. This I promise. No. This I swear to thee. <laughs> so basically, you're in a Shakespearean play. In I your get, head. I'm, what I like is that in my in my dreams, I'm valiant. <laughs> I'm a gentleman. Nick Kroll, the third and final season of Kroll Show, launched on Comedy Central this week. But Brendan, you know, you're supposedly from Philadelphia. Yeah, right. but I never heard you put on the accent. I swear sure? to God, I'm from Philly. Oh, there it is. It's beautiful there. Now, now I totally believe in from Donner Philly and that. Pass me a hoagie and some water. All right, now quick change of gears. We're going to talk about one of the most controversial real-life characters in the world. And that's right. In 2013, documentary filmmaker and journalist Lara Poitras received an encrypted email from an anonymous source calling himself Citizen Four. Mm. He turned out to be the government whistleblower Edward Snowden. He'd reached out to Poitras and her fellow journalist Glenn Greenwald to help get the word out about what he considered dangerous government practices. For instance, secret mass surveillance of unwitting Americans. That's right. He leaked an immense amount of data about these practices. Exactly, which ended up rattling the national security establishment and changing Snowden's life forever. Poitras' fly-on-the-wall film about that time is called Citizen Four. This week it earned an Oscar nomination for Best Documentary Feature. When we met, I started by asking about her first impressions of Snowden. 
So I was in touch with him for you know several months on email, and um, one of my first questions were the questions around motivation, like who are you and why are you making mm -hmm. these choices. He didn't share much about who he was. Um, he wanted to keep that confidential until he was ready to come forward, but he did share some things about motivation, which is these are programs that are happening that Im impact citizens of, of the United States and that they shouldn't be things that are happening in secret and that there need to be public debate around them. And that's a pretty consistent theme of, you know, what motivated him to come forward. Yeah. But the big sort of shock for both Glenn and myself when we arrived in Hong Kong was we had expected to meet somebody who was, you know, senior, you know, maybe late 40s, 50s. And, yeah. you know, to meet somebody so young was, was a bit shocking. And as someone who tracked the story in the news as it was unfolding, you know, I... I he was portrayed a little bit as this kind of rebellious, possibly narcissistic character who was recklessly rattling the system. But your documentary shows a more complex character. There's there's a sweetness to him. Uh, he really seems like he's trying to do the right thing. You you choose these moments where he's like worrying about his hair. He He's very concerned about the welfare of his girlfriend. I'm assuming you selected those moments to kind of round out the portrait of him. I mean, that's the sort of extraordinary ability that I get to do as, as a filmmaker. You know, I try to be in places where things are actually happening in real time. Mm. And I, I was very aware that there was something pretty extraordinary that he'd made this decision and the decision was going to have, you know, enormous personal consequences for him. And so I was trying to, you know, film small moments which I felt had more meaning, you know, or that had lots of yeah. subtext. But I mean... I think it's very heartbreaking when he starts to get the messages that his girlfriend had been visited by the NSA. And, you know, you, you feel the magnitude in that moment because it's actually happening as, as you're watching it. I just uh, heard from Lindsay, and uh, she's still alive, which is good uh, and, and free. Uh, so there's that. And apparently there's construction trucks all over the street of my house. So that's... Uh, I wonder what they're looking for. Well, part of the movie's appeal is that you're watching this person at the point of no return. You know, his his life will never be the same. And when I was watching it, it reminded me, oddly enough, of the Bob Dylan documentary, Don't Look Back, from, you know, the late 60s, where you see Dylan, already famous, but on the cusp of becoming a total icon. Uh, and there's this certain energy that comes from watching someone right before their life changes forever. Does that make sense? I mean, I, you know, what you just said, you know, resonates me in the sense of like that I'm very much, I make films in the tradition of cinema verite, which are yeah. when things are happening. And that's what um, D.A. Pennybaker did with Don't Look Back, which is a yeah. movie I love, where you're not just, you know, having Dylan in interviewed about his past, but you're there when it's happening, when he, you know, when the kind of the pulse, you can feel the pulse of the public um, response to, to his music. And, yeah. and I think, you know, I like to make films that are very much in that tradition where you're in the moment when things are happening. For most of the movie, the viewers hanging out with Snowden for the eight days when he was effectively trapped in a Hong Kong hotel room. It's a nondescript hotel room, just a bed, computer, and some other stuff. Uh, and yet outside, all hell is breaking loose because of his leak. And you know, there's breaking news, press conferences. You remain a relative fly on the wall during this time. What did it feel like to be at the core of the story as it was unfolding? I mean, honestly, you know, that sense of danger and suspense and uncertainty was very much all the things that I was feeling from the very first email I got from him to mm. being in the hotel room. I mean, there was always a sense of danger and uncertainty. And so we tried to, in the film, bring that forward. But it was very, it wasn't like we had to do so, so many cinematic tricks. It was 
pretty palpable. Mm. And um, but there was also, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, when I walked into the hotel room, I sort of I cringed a bit because I thought, like, oh wow, how am I going to be able to film in this location? There's all this white, and you know, it's, it wasn't you <laughs> yeah. know the most ideal, lush filming environment as a filmmaker. But I, you know, as a documentarian, you don't get to. Um, do set yeah, but you don't have an art director yeah <laughs> yeah you know, no art director but in retrospect it was actually i think it was all a blessing the sort of claustrophobic quality of the hotel mm-hmm. room and then what felt like being in the eye of the storm and then the sort of media um, response mm-hmm. that's happening outside i think all lend itself to a certain kind of drama yeah there's a moment in this movie when snowden is talking about how um he doesn't want to just dump all this data into the world because he fears that it will put some people in harm's way. Uh, and he also suggests that no one else will be able to kind of make the same decisions about what should or should not be shown. And watching that, one, doesn't that run counter to the idea of just getting the information out there? And two, how did you come around to this idea that his judgment is better than the countless people who have sworn to preserve and protect the Constitution, elected officials, People are committed to national security. I mean, you know, what we see in the hotel room is, you know, that Snowden makes a decision. He's got to share the material with journalists and let them make the decisions about what we believed was in the public interest. So he didn't want to be the one who was making those calls. But in terms but of, but he the didn't want to give qu- it to WikiLeaks either. He chose the journalists he gave it to. Right? No, right? he right. He wanted it to go through journalists to decide. So, for instance, you know, if you want to ask about what the public interest is, I mean. You know, Section 215 of the Patriot Act was a sort of secret interpretation of a law that allowed the government to collect all of our phone records. You know, now that's going through the court system. And there, you know, there have been some rulings that have called it unconstitutional. And I think that mm-hmm. I think some of these programs aren't going to um, uh, withstand scrutiny. legal scrutiny. Yeah. Um, free speech is obviously a big topic in the news this week. Many would suggest that having the ability to track and disrupt acts of terrorism not doing that is irresponsible. Others, that the NSA and what it's doing or was doing itself threatens free speech by tracking communications. You've examined this issue closely. Where where do you draw the line? I mean, I would say two things. One is I, of course, defend free speech, and I think that it's under attack, that this is this is an attack on, on freedom of expression and that we, you know, should not respond to that. These attacks with fear, we should respond to them with, you know, continuing to, you know, voice our opinions. In terms of, you know, the NSA, I mean, what the reporting we've done is is looking at the use of sort of bulk suspicionless surveillance of entire populations. So we have, you know, yeah. a collecting of all U.S. phone records, for instance. I mean, I think that those are different things. I, I haven't argued that there aren't times in which surveillance should be used by governments. So, for instance, if someone trains at a, you know, at a training camp, then... In Yemen. Yeah. Then I think the, the use of surveillance in that case... You know, it's yeah. So there is a place for this sort of work, right? I mean, of course. I mean, we still there are laws that govern these things, and there are rights that we have. And and I think that the use of bulk collected all suspicionless surveillance violates fundamental yeah. principles and and our constitution. And I think that those are things that we need to know what our government is doing and have debates and have legal oversight and those kinds of things. Yeah. And I think that that's been the focus of our, our reporting. One point in the movie, Snowden says, I feel good that I've given something for the good of others. Is that similar to how you feel? I actually haven't thought about it in those terms. I mean, of course, I stand behind, you know, the work that I've done, both in terms of the reporting and and making the film and documenting things in real time, I do think provides a historical record. And I think that that's something that's good to share with people. Mm -hmm. And that also provides a historical record. Document things in real time if you have the subject's permission. Right, exactly. (laughs) 
Enrico, I should note, Citizen Four is the third of a trilogy of films Poitras has made about post-9-11 America. The first was My Country, My Country, which also earned an Oscar nomination. And the second was The Oath, which is about Guantanamo. All worth a watch. Absolutely. And uh, folks, it's time for a quick break. Coming up, chef and author Eddie Huang on how Asian food made him an outsider and then a celebrity. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new tune from Mark Ronson. And coming up, I taste what happens when Texas gets its hands on Czech food. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is Eddie Wong. Back in 2009, after stints as a lawyer and a stand-up comedian, he opened the New York City Taiwanese restaurant Bauhaus and became a celebrity restaurateur. His memoir, Fresh Off the Boat, about growing up in America with a family of Taiwanese immigrants, has now been turned into an ABC sitcom of the same name. Eddie also narrates it. It debuts February 4th. And welcome back to the show, sir. Thanks for having me, guys. We had you on uh, our show reading a selection for your memoir. The New York Times described your memoir as, quote, an angry book. And it is a pretty clear-eyed look at how tough it is to grow up different in America. What were your worries about it getting adapted into a network sitcom? Yeah, no, I wanted it to keep that fire. You know, like, uh, I I feel that a lot of people that do network shows or things that are more mainstream, they feel they need to cater to an audience. But if you go around America, like I have on the Vice show and through my college speaking, you meet people who are from middle America and they're like, I want to see what else is going on. I'm sick of being fed the things people think I want. Mm. And I, I wanted to tell people in the studio and the network, look, man, middle America's ready. If we keep the energy mm. and we keep the passion and we keep a little bit of the anger as well, that's what people want to see. They want to see the truth. People want honesty in this generation. I think that's a very defining characteristic of it. Was there a moment that was added to the show or maybe taken out because you made that stand? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of voiceover lines that were written for me. And um, the one line that, you know, I wrote about it in New York Magazine, it's they wanted me to give the credit to America. Like, isn't America great? Mm-hmm. Jewish kids and Asian kids and black kids can all get along and go to a Beastie Boys concert. And for me, I was like, this only happens on TV, bro. Like this, this, (laughs) if three of us friends were at a concert, we wouldn't be like, man, America's great. No, man, we're individuals. You know, like America didn't give us free tickets to a show so we could all go. So, yeah, well, it's, it's a really entertaining show. There's one scene where Eddie is about to be befriended by the white kids at school until they smell the Taiwanese food he's brought for lunch. (laughs) And yeah. Asian food is really something that causes you to be ostracized from the larger society in the show. But 20 years later, serving the same food is what led the world to embrace you. Yeah. So what changed in those 20 years, do you think? Yeah, you know, when you were a kid in America and you're Asian in the 80s and 90s, it was, I really wanted to fit in. You're always just trying to hide the fact that you're an alien in a lot of ways. And you're like, I hope they don't find out. I hope they don't find out the things that I'm eating. I hope they don't find out the things that my mom thinks in her head. But the last 20 years, Asians have really broken down the barriers personally. And it hasn't been reflected in dominant mainstream culture. But person to person, you see interracial marriage. You see people doing study abroad. And as corny as it is when you see people's Instagram study abroad, interacting and meeting people from different cultures has broken down the walls in people's minds as individuals. Hmm. And finally, 
media is catching up. All right, fingers crossed. Meanwhile, uh, this is your chance to offer advice person to person to our listeners. Are you ready for these questions? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Here's something from Chris in Boston, Mass. And Chris, oh God. Chris, <laughs> Chris writes, where should you sit when you're on a date and the host or hostess puts you in one of those rounded corner booths? Mm. Mm. I guess that it's like, do you kind of cozy up? You know, I, I feel like you just cozy up, you know, like you got to take the initiative. If you're on a date, I, I think it's fine to take the initiative and make it personal. And that is which date it is, right? The first date, I think that's a tougher question. Though. But how could you not cozy up at a rounded corner booth? You could sit <laughs> uncomfortably on the sort of tips of the horseshoe, you know, if you're looking at the booth from above. That is not a date. I know, yeah. it's awkward. But that's like, there's no other thing that says I'm a wimp more than like, hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make sure I'm not offending you here. Yeah. You know? And also, there are two people involved in this situation. If you sit too close, the per- other person can move, she can a move. Bit to the side. You're fine. Yes. Don't, yeah. don't chase after the person. That, yeah. Don't don't slide around the booth. <laughs> no, if she moves, don't move again. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a one creepy. move thing. It's definitely it's a you make a move and that's it. Yeah. All right. It's a north south right. move. <laughs> there you go. There you Chris. go, uh, Chris. Good luck with that. Uh, our next question comes from Gregorio in the Bronx. Gregorio writes, When I was working in a local bar as a cook, I would frequently see front-of-house staff eating the food left on a plate after the customer was done with it. Oh, that's so ratchet. Am I wrong in thinking that this is absolutely skeevy? Which, for those who don't know, you just said ratchet. Ratchet, like the tool, that's slang for skeevy, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's so nasty. (laughs) It's slang for skeevy. It's just Well, but you ran a restaurant. You have to have seen something like that happen on occasion. Oh, yeah. Dude, I've seen people bring salads back to the the kitchen and eat the croutons off it. And I was like, bro, you could get a new crouton i mean sometimes i'm tempted too because you can see a dish that nobody's touched yeah um as a chef or a cook i will if something's sent back and they complained about it i will taste it because that's part of my job to make sure everything's okay otherwise Mm -hmm. just for pleasure absolutely not all right and the other i guess solution to this would be to actually feed the waiters so that they're not stealing people's food well they usually have a staff meal beforehand apparently that doesn't happen at gregorio's i have a funny story too because we're next to a kfc bauhaus and so you know we we took away staff meal for a second because people were totally abusing it just like eating five or six bowels a shift i was like guys (laughs) guys come on all right we maybe sold three bowels a shift and ate six so um there was a guy, he got, he in an act of defiance, I think, he went to KFC, bought a bucket of KFC, put it on the counter, and was just eating KFC while serving. And I was like, bro, we serve fried chicken here. And he's like, but you don't give it to me for free anymore. Oh, man. And so we had to come to a little bit of a compromise. All right. Yeah. Uh, so there you go, Gregorio. It is skeevy. You are correct. Here's something from Liz in New Haven, Connecticut. Is it okay, she writes, to ask for a fork? at an Asian restaurant where chopsticks are the norm. Look, I hate it, but it's fine. I have a lot of Chinese, Taiwanese, Korean, Cantonese friends. My friend Stephen Lau, who was the manager of Bauhaus, I'm going to put him on blast. Dude is the worst. (laughs) I've been friends with him for 10 years. This man, first question, he sits down at a Chinese restaurant, he's like, can I go to Fork? I'm like, you just stabbed the dumpling. All the juice came out. What are you doing? So it's so, but you're saying it's okay, even though it's you hate it, but it's okay. I'll, I'll judge you, but it's fine. There are things though, like a piece of sushi, where if you use a fork, you're adulterating it yeah, because yeah. sushi is all about mouthfeel and the cutting of it and the rice sure. staying together. Like you kind of need to use chopsticks or fingers, but these. Half my half my Asian friends in New York they're stabbing things with forks. Well, let's have a caveat: sushi with the fork never okay. No. That's ridiculous. All right. Yeah. Um, this next question comes from Trevor in Scottsdale, Arizona. Trevor writes: Does half of a donut in the box mean that someone has claimed it, or that they only wanted half 
and the rest is up for grabs. <laughs> okay, so this is an easy one, right? If it's just a half a donut and it looks like somebody bit it, that's been claimed. Also, the person that put it back in is ratchet. Now, if, 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 <laughs> if there's a knife in the box and then the donut has been cut in half, then that's fair game. That's a half a donut left for you. Yeah, that's okay. right. It's like basically you have to, is it a jagged or a straight line yeah. cut? Yes, but I've always looked at these donuts that are half chin. I'm like, who does this? Like, who throws a shoe and who puts a donut that's been bitten back in the box? <laughs> you can also do the yeah. move where you, if, if it does look like it's been bit into, where you take a knife and cut off that part though what about that i do that that's weird that's a lot of work i do that no i i like the the more environmentalist sustainable approach yeah. to the second bite donut you know you have I to like that. consume it i i read something recently when there's one whole donut left and you want it but you want to be respectful that it's the last donut you pick it up hold it up and say does anybody else want this donut <laughs> And but then, you're holding of course, it. You're holding it, so yep. you get to keep it. Yeah, it's yours. It's that's that's like when you kind of fake pull out your wallet to pay for something. Like, oh, you got this. You got this. Oh, okay, cool, man. That's the that's that move. All right, Eddie Huang. That is all the time we have. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave or not to behave. All right, behave yourselves. Chef and author Eddie Huang, the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, which he narrates and is based on his life, premieres February 4th on ABC. And people, we encourage you to send in questions about etiquette. Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Or leave a message at the DPD hotline, a.k.a. the phone at Brendan's desk. The number is 213-621-3460. So we just learned some food manners. Now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about the food itself. Enrico, long before there were cronuts, denolis, and all of these other chef-induced hybrid baked goods that people go nuts about, mm -hmm. there was what I call an organic hybrid happening down in Texas. All right, Tex-Mex. Well, that, that, but also Tex-Check. Not Tex-Checks. No, not that would be Chex check. Mix with queso poured on it. No, that this is actually non-disgusting. Oh. I'm talking about a baked good called the kolache. Oh. Around the turn of the 20th century, thousands of immigrants from the Czech Republic moved to the Lone Star State and brought along this little treat, which was then Texified. Uh, this month, Bon Appetit predicted it would increase its popularity this year, and in fact, it's already spreading across the country. One of the people responsible for that is Paul Ashley. Along with his wife, Sarah, and their friend, Vin Perone, he started King's Kalachi Bakery in Brooklyn. The other day, I had Paul come by the studio with kalachis in hand. And first, I asked him to fill me in on some history. Kalachi is a traditional Czech pastry. Okay. Um, started off as a dessert pastry, and then it kind of entered the American food scene in like the 1800s, mid-1800s. Okay. The traditional Czech one is uh, a lot of times like poppy seed and uh, sweet cheeses and berries and... When it kind of moved down and got popularized down in Texas, they took that same dough. And, of course, being Texas, they added, like, meat and cheese and peppers and all that. So it kind of look, feels like the, it's, a, it's a cousin of the bun, like the Asian bun, because it yes. feels like a donut. It's got stuff inside it. Yep. And yet it's a little bit drier and not as sweet. So how do you make a kolache? So it's made, um, the dough's the most important part. It's this amazing, like, semi-sweet yeast dough that we let rise and then punch down and encase everything else like you would in a pork bun or in a bao, for example. Uh, and then we uh, just bake them with all those fillings inside already. And so you grew up in Texas? 
Yeah, I grew up uh, right outside of Houston. Were there a lot of kolaches around when you were growing up? There were, yeah. Uh, Saturday mornings for, for me growing up, we'd have uh, a dozen kolaches for the family in the morning. <laughs> and Sweet um, kolaches or savory kolaches? See, we would have the Texas style. We'd have the, the savory ones. Is kolache check for Hot Pocket? They feel I a little know, hot right? pockety. Yeah. <laughs> They're a little hot. They're like hot pockets for uh, for adults. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> are there strong opinions about kolaches down there? There are strong opinions. There are the traditionalists who, um, you know, see the kolache as what it is. It's it's uh, dessert pastry with poppy seeds. And technically, I believe we're making the club klobazniak. Okay. Which is essentially just the same exact dough, but with meat and cheese and, mm-hmm. and savory fillings baked inside, mm-hmm. which. You know, again, Texas has kind of adopted as its kolache. Tell me about the sorts of kolache you make at King's Kolache. So we try to stay true to the Texas kolache, which can be found, you know, in like road stop places like Ruska's and between Houston and San Antonio. And one of the best, one of the classics is uh, smoked beef sausage and cheddar. Mm-hmm. Um Sometimes we'll add like candied jalapeno there. Mm-hmm. We'll make sure that it's this really great smoked beef sausage in there, sharp cheddar cheese. We're looking at some, you, you brought some kolache with you. Yeah. So these are some beef and cheddar kolaches. They look like somewhere between a racquetball and a tennis ball. That's right. But they are, they're perfectly kind of round. And I, I'm looking at this, I'm going to say it looks like good stoner food. <laughs> it's good. It's that's <laughs> true. It's also really great food uh, for bars. A lot of bars we distribute to. Um, it's perfect drunk food at the yeah, end of the night because it's beer. just very portable. It's yeah. filled with savory goodness, and oh, yeah. uh, and it, you're not going to spill on yourself because there's like a it's a building container. Exactly. We have this one customer that she would get them in the morning. We were halfway between her house and her work. She would get them in the morning, and she would uh, use them as hand warmers in her coat. <laughs> Is and that real kolache hand warmers? That's real. <laughs> I know. It's a, it's a fantastic use. And she uh, she would use them as hammers and then just eat them when she got to work. All right. I used the special dinner party download microwave to heat these up. Does that do damage to the dough? Um, No. It's, uh, you know, it's best when it's toasted, but it holds up really well in the microwave, too. All right. Well, if the fire marshal doesn't allow us to have one of those. So do you want to hear <laughs> I, I've heated up two of them. Definitely. I'm going to take a bite of the kolache. Right. Me, too. Hmm. There's a really nice proportion of uh, dough to to meat interior with gooey cheese, and then this is look, looks like a classic orange cheese. Which oh, yeah. I would you get in trouble in Texas if you use like a non-orange cheese? Pro- probably, you know, <laughs> we gotta keep it orange. I'm looking at these other kolaches. We have another pair of them. Oh, what yes. what are in these kolaches? This one's one of my favorites. It's a black bean chorizo, cilantro and corn, and a little mm. bit of lime in there. Oh, cilantro. So there's green in there. There's a little green so in it's here. It's a little healthy. It's very healthy for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this guy. All right, me too. Mm. I like the bean situation. They're fantastic. What is the filling you tried that didn't work out? It's a very good question. We're really into I. Another thing I love that's also kind of distinctively Southern, which we thought would be good with our, our kolaches, is uh, pimento cheese. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, we like stuffing these things with as much filling as possible. And we just found out that uh, if you do that with pimento cheese in an oven, it just explodes. It just rockets <laughs> out little, of that little kolache. Hand grenades. They're little hand grenade bombs of cheese and, and gluten. You mm. could firebomb a cronut store with your kolache. You t- oh, yes. That, see, that, but that's probably the realistic future for us, just exactly. firebombing cronut stores. That's yeah. what's going to happen next. <laughs> Come on and dance the Texas polka. I want to hear the fiddle play. Enrico, quick note, kolaches are tasty. 
but mm. I would stop after two if I were you. I went with four, and the results were a little painful. Weird. Yeah. You felt bad after stuffing four large <laughs> balls of dough full of cheese and meat into your stomach? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it was my fault for loading them into a tennis ball cannon and, you know, having them fired at my face every 15 minutes. That, it sounds like a step too far. Maybe. But no judgment. Thanks. Uh, folks, that's the dinner party download for this week. For pictures of kolaches, uh, also cocktail recipes, and a shot of our guest of honor, Nick Kroll, sexily clutching our dinner party download pillow. Yes, we do have a dinner party download pillow. Yeah, just the one. They're not for sale to the public yet. But the picture and all that other stuff is on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. That is also where you can sign up for our equally sexy newsletter. Our equally sexy producer is Jackson Musker. Digital assistance is provided by Brittany Martin. Daniel Ramirez was our engineer. Our interns are Christiana Cabal and Ed Morales. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. This week, British musician and producer Mark Ronson released a new album called Uptown Special. A song by that name with Bruno Mars has topped the charts, but we've been enjoying another track. It is called Leaving Los Files. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis. Yeah. Brendan, mm-hmm. can we not have the Kalachi Cannon in here while we were... Co- Ow! That, that got my eye.